Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. Today on the show, we have James H. Madison. Jim is the Thomas and Catherine Miller Professor Emeritus of History at Indiana University. He is an award-winning classroom instructor and the author of several books having to do with Indiana and the Midwest. He is a recipient of the Frederick Jackson Turner Lifetime Achievement Award from the Midwestern History Association. Jim, welcome to History 605. Thank you, Ben. Nice to be here. Nice to be in South Dakota, at least virtually. (laughs) I wanted to have you on the show to discuss your book, The Ku Klux Klan and the Heartland, which takes a look at the rise and fall of the Klan in Indiana in the 1920s. Primarily, I wanted to do it because one of the more controversial artifacts we have in the museum is a KKK robe that was donated to our society in the 1970s that kind of came to us anonymously from the Black Hills area. And uh, it often draws a lot of shock that somebody in South Dakota would be a member of the KKK. And having uh, dived into the newspapers of the 1920s in South Dakota, we see that the KKK was, well, it thrived, I guess, comparatively. And unfortunately, it it drew a lot of membership. And in fact, they had a national conclave uh, of the KKK in Belfouche, South Dakota in 1925. So I thought your book explained a lot of the context behind the rise of uh, the second wave of the KKK. So I guess my first question to you is, can you describe the uh, your book in the introduction in the first uh, few pages goes through these uh waves of popularity of the KKK that are distinct and come about for different reasons and go away for, di- for you know, for reasons that are uh, unique to their time. I'm wondering if you can just briefly talk about those three waves. Sure. Let me, let me go back though to your comment, Ben, about, uh, about the robe in your collections. I think yeah. many, many museums have such artifacts and they've been a troubling issue. I know here in Indiana and elsewhere, uh, what do you do with them? Uh, and they're shocking. And a lot of people say we don't want to show them. We don't want to. We don't want people to see them. Uh, that's a kind of covering up history, and maybe we can talk about that in other contexts. So it's not not unique to South Dakota. In fact, the Klan is very popular in America across most of America in the 1920s. I can quote the first sentence of my book from memory. I kind of like this sentence. You know, you're not supposed to like your own writing, I guess. But <laughs> but uh, the first sentence is the Ku Klux Klan in America was as dark as the night and as American as apple pie. Now, that's a contradiction, and I'm hoping, I'm sure it will get into that. 
Let me answer your more immediate question. There are three Ku Klux Klans in American history, and they're very confusing to sort out. But unless you sort them out, you can't understand the Klan that we're interested in today. That is the Klan of the 1920s. The earlier Klan, right after the Civil War in the 1860s and 70s, was a Southern organization, limited completely to the South. It was former Confederates who did not want to accept the results of the Civil War. They lost. They lost their slaves. They were very, very unhappy about it, and they tried through vigilante action to overturn that result in the the first Ku Klux Klan in the 1860s and 70s. The third Klan, let me jump ahead to the third Klan, is the more recent Klan, and in fact, in some ways, the Klan of today. It begins in the 1960s in response to the Civil Rights Movement. These are Americans who did not like this, what the civil rights movement was doing, the way it was upsetting their notions of difference. And so in response, they formed Klan groups across the country. I suspect in South Dakota, certainly in Indiana and Pennsylvania and California. And, and they persist in some ways down to the present. We saw some of them in Charlottesville in 2017. But these more recent Klan groups are very, very small. They are not mainstream Americans. They are marginal people in political, cultural, and even economic ways. They don't provide the kind of threat to our values that the Klan of the 1920s did. So it's the earlier Klan and the recent Klan, and then the one in the middle that I think Mm -hmm. is far and away the most fascinating and the most important. And that is the Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s, which had chapters, claverns, they called them, everywhere, including in South Dakota. Uh, You talked about the rise of the first Klan. Why did it go away? Nathan Bedford Forrest and that that cast of characters. That first Klan Klan actually, uh, not just that Klan, but other forces in the South, in the post-Civil War South, were able to achieve pretty much what they wanted. And what they wanted was what we now call Jim Crow segregation. That is a very tight system of segregating African-Americans and keeping them in a lower political and economic circumstance. And they achieved that. By the Mm -hmm. end of the century, they had achieved great success in building that Jim Crow system in the South. That's what that first Klan wanted. So it was a successful Klan. The fable of what I read about, uh, say, Nathan Bedford Forrest and so forth is that it got that first clan got too violent, even for him. He was very yeah, familiar it, with it, violence uh, from being a general in the Civil War. And, yeah, and and you know Nathan Bedford Forrest is another kind of general in the Civil War. He's my least right. favorite of them all. And I always like to say when we talk about this subject, my great great grandfather William Pendleton Madison fought on that side. I think it's the wrong side uh-huh. in the American Civil War. Uh, but Forrest was was really a nasty nasty general. And the fact that he was celebrated in the Klan and celebrated for decades and centuries after in the South is, to me, a devout Yankee, uh, an abomination. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I'm sure there are Forrest fans out there still, but sorry. Well, I, yeah, I mean, his certainly, I used to teach at the Air Force Academy and teach about the Civil War and his battlefield tactics. They're quite insightful. They're the storyline, a lot of the battles that he fought and his influence just on kind of tactical thinking about battlefield management, battlefield campaigns, and so forth are uh, insightful. So I think certainly at West Point and other places around, if you talk about battles, Nathan Bedford Forrest's name is going to come up. Yeah. 
in in a in a in a narrow military sense. I'm I'm referring, of course, sure. to the deliberate murder of captured Union soldiers, um, yeah, and, and yeah. particularly of African American Union soldiers, right, who were uh, this... prisoners of war and murdered in cold blood. And I mm-hmm. think all of us would agree that's that's an abomination. Right. Let's talk about the second wave then of the Klan and uh, the the gist of your book. What are the conditions that that bring about this very different uh, clan that's not kind of in the in the common understanding of most folks when they see the robe in our museum and so forth? Yeah. First of all, the the Klan of the twenties is is not an abomination. It's not a fluke. It doesn't come out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. The Klan of the twenties picked up on ideas on 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 values on notions that had been around in America from the very very beginning and we can talk about those so it's not it's not an unusual or or fluke kind of event at the same time there are conditions in the early 1920s that make the clan make Americans more receptive to the clan message this is right after world war 1 which was a war that really disrupted not just our international issues, but disrupted our culture, our social and political life here in America. It made Americans, many Americans, feel that times were changing too quickly. And there was all kinds of danger out there, all kinds of uncertainties, all kinds of threats to the American way of life. That America was actually, um, I title one of the chapters of this book, going to hell in a handbasket that America was in deep decline, and the Klan came along as a reform movement. Now, that contradicts our notions of the Klan, I think, but that's what they thought of themselves as, a movement that was going to reform America, that was going to turn America back to the traditional good ways of the past, that imagined past, that golden age that I don't think has ever quite existed, but the Klan was, was promising that. And at the same time, they were picking up on these, um, what we would now regard, very, very negative, outrageous ideas about America and about people in America. So the times in the early 1920s are ripe. It's like a tinderbox, and the Klan strikes and strikes the flame and sets it alight and takes these notions and magnifies them with its messages in a very, very sophisticated way. So all of this takes organization and money and so forth and how, and leadership in, in Indiana, who, and across nationally then, I suppose there's a, there's a kind of a national umbrella organization, and your book talks about how the, the Southern KKK, as it is in the second <laughs> wave, uh, doesn't necessarily get along with those outside the South in the KKK. Yeah. What leads to that, and how does that yeah. kind of? That's a that's a good point, Ben. Because we're lucky that that, uh, and this often happens in groups like this. Well, in all groups, they don't all get along. In fact, they are in serious competition. There's controversy within the clan, and that limits their power and eventually contributes to their to their downfall. But back to your original question here. The the Klan was a very, very sophisticated organization. One of the great sources, one of the great primary sources that I used in writing this book is at the Indiana Historical Society Library. You may have a copy of this in your collections. It's a Klan manual. It's an inch thick, a bound book 
the clan manual telling local claverns, local organizers, how to build the organization, all the way down to running the local meeting, to having social events, to conducting clan funerals and clan weddings, the ritual for a clan funeral. And there are photographs of clan funerals and and testimony, newspaper reports of clan funerals in the 1920s. So this is evidence of a very sophisticated organization that was able to raise lots of money to hire recruiters to go out in Indiana, and I'm sure in South Dakota, and recruit new members to sign up new members to convince them to pay their dues, which were significant, to purchase their robe, their regalia, which you had mm-hmm. to buy from official clan sources, mm-hmm. another source of money for the organization. Right, I noticed robes. that. Yeah, um, robes weren't and, cheap. And then, and then the people at the top, they were not fools. They were not rubes. They were not ignorant, unwashed people. They were very sophisticated. The most famous one in Indiana is D.C. Stevenson, David C. Stevenson. And he's well known at the time, and he's known across the country. He's probably, I'm certain, he's known in South Dakota because some Indiana folks come out to South Dakota to begin organizing clan claverns and recruit clan members to show the good people of South Dakota how you do this, the Indiana way of building a clan. But Stevenson is, is a marketing person. He's a salesman. He's one of these jovial, well-met fellows, and they're full of them in the 1920s. Sinclair Lewis satirized them, others did. But but Stevenson is very, very smart and very sophisticated, and he builds this organization in Indiana. He has national ambitions. He wants to head the entire national clan. And, you know, that's not impossible that that might have happened. Well, you talk about him as a social and political organization. What are the issues that they take on? Well, they take on a lot of issues. They say they were they're reform organizations, so they're interested in in returning America to its greatness. The Klan is an organization of hate. We would say it today. I hate to call them a hate group group in the context of the 1920s or bigoted in the context of our time, but they were. They have enemies. They have three primary enemies. The Klan, one, and the largest, most serious enemy to America are Catholics. That's hard to believe, to understand today, anti-Catholicism, but it was very, very powerful in America, in Protestant America, in the 1920s, down to the 1960s. Some of your listeners will remember the election of 1960, when there were people who were fearful that John Kennedy, a Catholic, was going to be uh, in, in holding to the Pope in Italy. Very, very strong anti-Catholicism. With that opposition to immigrants, and many immigrants were Catholic, Immigrants were tearing down America. Jews, of course, Jews are always on the enemy's list in these kinds of situations. Even in places like Indiana and South Dakota, where there are very few Jews, the anti-Semitism in the Klan was just deep. Then finally, those who were not uh, who were not native-born, all the Klan members, and I should have started with this, Ben, because this is essential. All the Klan members are Protestants. This is a Protestant organization, a Christian organization. So there are Methodists and Lutherans and Baptists and Disciples of Christ. They are Protestants. And they believe themselves to be 100% American. Now, I think that's a very dangerous idea. Who's to say that I'm 100% American and you're not? But the Klan did. So the Klan 
Protestant, white, native-born, those three criteria are 100% American. All others are not. I missed, of course, African-Americans, obviously not 100% Americans in my list. Catholics, immigrants, Jews, African-Americans, all far less than 100% American, not really Americans. And these are the people who are tearing down America. And we got to keep them in their place. We got to make sure they do not get the power. We want to limit immigration to the United States. Uh, we want to keep Catholics from opening these parochial schools, which are inculcating all sorts of notions in young kids. These are the enemies. And okay. the Klan was very powerful in building fear of those enemies. Now, the Klan's also a reform organization, and, and they have all kinds of issues in addition to these three dangerous groups that they think need, uh, need fixing. And, the, the big, and it varies from place to place. It varies from state to state, from locality to locality. Uh, but the biggest issue in many places, certainly in Indiana, was prohibition. Alcohol, mm -hmm. alcohol was demon. Alcohol was the work of the devil. This is the time of prohibition, national prohibition. You can't legally buy or manufacture or consume alcohol. And the Klan was very upset that those prohibition laws were being violated and believed that government and Klan vigilantes had to enforce prohibition. So lots and lots of issues. And again, they vary from place to place. That's one of the fascinating things about working on the Klan. You can, you can dig down anywhere in America uh, where there's Klan activity and, and find all sorts of, of situations, conditions that fit the national picture, but also local variation of all kinds. What was the response from Indiana governor and, uh, and uh, <laughs> leading politicians to the Klan? Here's where Indiana is on, on the wrong side of history, because um, the, the governor elected in 1924 in Indiana and the state legislature elected in 1924 in Indiana were Klan people. The governor is my candidate for the worst governor in the history of Indiana, and he's got some contempt. He's got some <laughs> others who might make that list, but he's, he's far and away. He, he was a Klan supporter, active Klan supporter. A very close uh, ally of D.C. Stevenson, the Grand Dragon, so-called, of the Indiana Klan. Uh, and then the majority of the state legislature that sat in early 1925 were Klan members or supportive of the Klan. So the Klan gets into politics, and this is not unusual for this sort of organization. The Klan entered politics in the 19, early 1920s very aggressively, very smartly, and was able to elect candidates to office, worked very hard to do that and did it in Indiana and in other places. Not every place across the, the nation, but, but certainly in Indiana, uh, in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, uh, other places, the Klan did elect its people. So were they running party. ads? I mean, kind of as they were a running ads, group saying they were, they were doing a lot of, yeah, a lot of grassroots campaigning. They sent out Klan members all across the state to campaign for candidates. First of all, they identified which candidate would be a Klan supporter. Uh, they made a commitment. Uh, the candidate made a commitment to support the Klan and was then identified as a Klan candidate in publicity, in meetings, in rallies, et cetera, et cetera. So that uh, it was a very sophisticated, very organized political machine that was very powerful. In fact, uh, in Indiana, in the Klan, in Indiana in 1924, 25, the Klan 
was the most powerful political organization in the state, more powerful than the Republican Party and certainly more powerful than the minority Democratic Party. Well, that's a good segue into my next question. What does is, what is the GOP in Indiana think of this and what's the Democratic Party? Well, it the clan the clan really split the politicians. I I'm, I was blessed to have a lot of good correspondence between uh, between political uh, office holders and leaders uh, in the in both parties, Democrat and Republican. The Republicans were really really upset, anxious. They didn't want anyone controlling their party, and not the clan. Okay. Even if they believed with clan values. Uh, they didn't want to be controlled by the Klan, but the Klan had the power among the voters, among the people. And so they had to make accommodation, and they did. Most Republicans went along. A few stood up, a few dissented, but most went along, some enthusiastically, some, you know, holding their nose uh, because mm-hmm. of the stink of the Klan and going along because they wanted to be elected. They wanted to be reelected. At the national level, what's. Uh, was Hardings and Coolidge, uh, who were presidents during this, and Coolidge, it's during the middle of the Coolidge term, and was a fairly popular president. What did he think of the KKK? I think, I think at the national level, uh, all politicians, uh, they don't want to touch this. This is the third mm-hmm. rail, and yeah. they do not want to touch the Klan. They want to stay away from it. Only when the Klan's strength and power forces them to, to take a position, and then they take often a mealy mouth kind of position. Mm-hmm. And that was the the position of most of the national leaders. I don't know that that Coolidge or Harding, I can't recall, ever commented on the Klan or commented negatively on it or enthusiastically. Well, Silent Cal kept silent on a lot of issues. And this, <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> this probably just stood in line with that. What's the response of the people who are, are uh, there in opposition? For instance, the Catholic leadership, the, the that's a great Indiana question. diocese and so forth. What are they? Yeah, that's a very important part of all of this because as powerful as a Klan was, and again, it was very powerful politically, socially, culturally, a lot of pressure on people. Um, you're in a small town in Indiana and even in a big city like Indianapolis, there's a lot of pressure because so many people belong that you know. Uh, and people who you don't know because of the robes, you, you, they're disguised, of course. Uh, there's this fear that you must join. You must go along. Uh, it's it's going to be bad for business. It's going to be bad for your family, for your friends. If you don't, jo- don't join the Klan, a lot of pressure. But there were always, everywhere, individuals and groups who resisted. And I write about this. I have an entire chapter on it. And I write about it in other parts of the book because I think it's very important. I think it's very important to know that in America, we have always had people of courage, of wisdom, of goodwill, who will stand up, have stood up, will stand up to an organization like this. And they did. And they were very, very important. The Catholics, of course, because they're the largest and the most often cited by the Klan as the enemy. The Catholics do organize. By this time in the 1920s, Catholics in America are beginning to move into a kind of middle-class status. They're beginning to have some power and influence in politics and elsewhere. They're moving out of their earlier immigrant uh, minority status. And that's a good thing for them and a good thing for America, I think, because they have the power to conduct political campaigns against Klan candidates and to speak out. The Catholics. Uh, organize a, 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 a create an organization across uh, 
Indiana and Illinois, and I don't know if it reaches into South Dakota, they publish a, a weekly newspaper called Tolerance. It's, it's like the onion in the way that it treats the Klan, making, mocking them, making fun oh, of them. Really? That's a useful, Interesting. useful strategy in this kind of a situation. Uh, they, they have a lawyer out of Chicago who travels the Midwest giving lectures against the Klan. So Catholics are very important in leading the opposition to the Klan. Some Jewish rabbis stand up to the Klan, some Jewish citizens. Mm-hmm. And African-Americans stand up. The NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the first and most important civil rights organization in 20th century America, is, is still kind of weak and not so powerful, but it has chapters in many towns across the Midwest, larger towns and cities. And these local branches are vital, are are revived or vitalized by the Klan's intrusion hmm. into social and political lives. And so they respond. They, 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 they organize rallies. They create posters. Uh, they get engaged in the 1924 campaign in Indiana. The answer, uh, NAACP does? NAACP, yeah. Very okay. active and very smart. A lot of black lawyers involved, black yeah. ministers. Black yeah. church women who are a powerful force in the 19th. That's right. In Indiana and elsewhere in the North, most African Americans since the Civil War voted Republican. They voted for the party of Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. the party of emancipation. In 1924, because of the Klan tie to the Republican Party, African Americans in Indiana and elsewhere for the first time voted against the Republican candidates for the Democratic candidates. This was the beginning of the shift that eventually occurred in the 1930s and especially the 1960s as, as black voters began to vote Democratic and not mm-hmm. Republican. So the opposition is from these kinds of groups, some newspaper editors, some lawyers. Um, the Indiana Bar Association, in a very courageous act, passed at its annual meeting a resolution condemning the Klan as a hate group. That's a very powerful courageous dance to take in 1924 in Indiana. So they used that term hate group in 1924? They, they used the word hate. I don't think they used hate okay. group in their referendum. I'd have to go back and read my yeah. book then, but yeah. I, they, use, they use the term hate. Okay. And, and it's in language, the, res- the referendum or resolution uh, by the Bar Association is a language that sounds very much like our language today mm-hmm. on this subject. It's... Uh... Certainly, you look around today, and you, the NAACP is a force in national politics, and and openly, and political candidates vie for their endorsement. And uh, I can't think of a political candidate who uh, has openly and uh, actively sought the endorsement of the KKK uh, today. <laughs> Not right? today. No. Not today. That would be what were some of the gems you you talked about in the you mentioned the newsletter, the Fiery Cross? I think was the yeah. was the, the source of uh, how they, or their, their manual for organizing, but they also had this newsletter, which was uh, replete in your sources throughout your book, The Fiery Cross. It's a wonderful source. The, the beauty of the Klan, I spent, I spent much longer on this book than I wanted to, or should have maybe, because <laughs> you know how, what happens, Ben, you get into the primary sources and it's a rabbit hole. You just spend, before you know it, you spend weeks reading The Fiery Cross. Yeah. The Fiery Cross was the weekly newspaper of the Indiana Klan. 
And it circulated across the Midwest and other places as okay. well. It had news from other places. The good news for anyone interested is that it's digitized. You can go online and you can do what I did. You can spend weeks reading the fiery cross. You can search. You can you can keyword search. You could search for South Dakota and see if there's any coverage of news in South Dakota. I'd bet the okay. farm there is. Yeah. Uh, so it's published every week. And it is a Klan propaganda sheet. It is, mm -hmm. it is just ludicrous in its propaganda. It does not deal in facts. It does not deal in truth. It deals in Klan myths, in Klan uh, values, negative values. Mm -hmm. But it has the advantage of, for a, for a historian, on reporting on Klan meetings, on burning crosses, on Klan ritual, on Klan songs, on Klan weddings, all across the state and beyond the state. And so... You can, you can get into the grassroots level, which is one of the important things I wanted to do, not just write about state level, not just about D.C. Stevenson, but get down to what's happening, what was happening in Evansville or Fort Wayne mm -hmm. uh, or small towns. So uh, the Klan Fiery Cross is a great primary source for, for historians. You make a point, and I think you have a whole chapter devoted to this, that the the myth of the Klan, say in the 1920s, and lynching. Uh, you you wow. state quite emphatically there's no evidence of the KKK uh, murdering anybody, which I was I was shocked. Um, yeah, that that's uh, there are a lot of myths about the Klan, and uh, many of them are kind of self-serving. Hoosiers have always been embarrassed in my lifetime uh, by the Klan. Mm -hmm. And stations, I not so much anymore. But years ago, I'd get calls from from reporters saying, uh, uh, "I'm working on this story. I hear that Indiana is a Klan state," and I say, "Well, no, Indiana is not a Klan state. It's never been a Klan state. We don't like that, of course, to be thought of as a Klan state." And so, mm -hmm. we've created these myths that uh, whitewash our history, and uh, we don't talk about certain aspects of the Klan, because it's still, still, this is amazing, still in the 21st century in Indiana, the subject is painful. The Indiana Historical Society is going to open exhibit, an exhibit on the Klan oh. in early 2024, and um, I'll be very, very interested to see what the reaction will be. You mm -hmm. know, we talked earlier about displaying a Klan robe. They're going to do a whole exhibit oh. on the Klan in Indiana. And focusing on what we were just talking about, that is the opposition to the Klan, which I think is a very good way to uh, yeah. talk about this. I've, I've rambled on here, Ben. I forgot your initial question. Oh, the, just the, the violence, about. the aspect of violence oh, yes, that the Klan yes, yes, seemed yes. to. I, I spent a lot of time, as I said earlier, talking across Indiana to all kinds of groups. And when the Klan comes up, and it almost always comes up, mm -hmm. one of the reasons I decided to write this book was every place I spoke about anything, the Civil War or whatever, I got questions about the Klan. Okay. It was Indiana Klan State, blah, blah, blah. Everyone, nearly everyone thought, and some still do, that the Klan was a violent organization, that they went about murdering people, lynching African-Americans especially. So I've had a standing order for years, for decades. Anyone who can bring to me valid primary source evidence of a Klan lynching I'll give you a reward. I used to say $25. I think I've raised it to $100 now. <laughs> and so far, I haven't had to pay uh -huh. because so far, you never know. Right. Never say never. But so far, no one yeah. has has cited a valid source of a Klan lynching in Indiana. Right Now, 
I want to quickly say there was a lynching in Indiana in 1930. Okay. August the 7th, 1930, Marion, Indiana, just north of Indianapolis. I wrote a book about that lynching. It's called A Lynching in the Heartland. And I tried in that book to put this horrible, horrible event into the context of America, not just Indiana, but America in the 20th century, into the context of our struggles with vigilante violence, our struggles with race, our struggles with uh, who we are as Americans. But that lynching in Indiana in 1930 was not a Klan lynching. Klan values, of course, still persisted. Klan notions about 100% Americans and African Americans as a threat very much persisted in 1930. But by 1930, the Klan was dead in Indiana and everywhere else, virtually. The Klan was gone by 1930. So it wasn't men or women in robes who lynched Tom Ship and Abe Smith, teenagers, black teenagers, lynched on the courthouse square in Grant County, Indiana. It wasn't the Klan. It was the good people of Grant County, Indiana, if you will. So I don't consider that. And I wrote, a, I spent yeah. a lot of time yeah. researching that book and writing that book. I don't consider that a Klan lynching. I don't think there was ever a Klan lynching in Indiana. I don't think ever Klan murdered anyone. They did use, very importantly, the threat of violence, the intimidation. That's what the robes and masks are about. That's right. what the rituals are about, the burning right. crosses. And, and occasionally they would, they would take an adulterer out of his house and, and whip him, rough people up occasionally. Yeah. But the Klan leadership said, no, 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 we're not about violence. We are an American organization. We're 100% American, and we don't engage in that kind of violence. And so they, they tampered down whatever violent instincts might have been okay. in the membership. And the consequence was that the Klan was mostly, mostly a peaceful organization, but very, very successful at intimidating people who mm -hmm. thought were not 100% Americans. Right. I was speaking recently in a group, and there was a high school student in the group, and she, the KKK robe came up. She said, that costume just looks silly. I don't understand <laughs> why they, why they would wear that. And and yeah. then someone else in the in the audience kind of snickered and helpfully said, "Well, it's dark out, it's scary, and there's a burning cross there. It gets a little nerve wracking. <laughs> it gets very nerve wracking, and right. it's hard it's hard to find first person testimony now. But when I started out many years ago, there were a lot of people in Indiana who'd come up to me and tell me stories about seeing a Klan march in Muncie or Indianapolis or elsewhere, mm -hmm. and saying, as a kid." and even older, how frightful, how scared they were. Yeah. And we're talking about parades down the main street of towns mm -hmm. in which hundreds of robed men and women and children in Klan regalia, not just men, mm -hmm. almost as many women as men joined the Klan, hmm. marching down the main street with a Klan band, with floats, with burning crosses. They actually, for parades, they hooked up a and an electric light cross to the battery of the Ford automobile or whatever mm -hmm. they were driving. Uh, and then they march out to the county fairgrounds or another baseball park, and they set a massive cross on fire. They sing, uh, a mighty fortress is our God. Oh, boy. Yeah. These were good Americans in their own 
This is what's hard to get. In their own view of themselves, they were good Americans doing the right thing for America. Well, it's interesting, this response to the consternation of uh, the First World War. South Dakota passes laws uh, banning the teaching of German in response to the First World War. So does Indiana. Isn't that great? It's crazy. (laughs) If you go to war, you want to know something about the enemy, don't you? I mean, you're an expert in military history. Don't you want to know the enemy? Exactly. I, I just thought, well, and there were there were thousands of uh, immigrant German farmers who had lively German newspapers. I mean, the language yes. was uh, part and parcel of South Dakota life in the in the 1890s through the 1920s, and yeah, and then uh, that that uh, just worked to kill in a lot of ways. One of my favorite German-American Hoosiers, my favorite German-American Hoosier, Kurt Vonnegut, the author of Slaughterhouse-Five and other books, uh-huh. in his memoir writes, growing up in Indianapolis in a German-American family, they just, and it's a wonderful, I can't quote it, a wonderful paragraph, they stripped me of my culture. They took away my heritage. He felt it deeply, yeah. as I'm sure many German-Americans did across yeah. the country. One of the, uh, when I was looking through the South Dakota newspapers about the KKK, I came across a letter to the editor in the Deadwood newspaper. It's pretty long. They gave him a lot of inches to expound upon his experience at the KKK meeting in, in uh, Deadwood. He said he, he went because he was invited. They'd put out a public call to all good Americans or language such as that. And he went and then, and the, one of the first uh, things they did was ask any Catholics, blacks, and Jews to leave. And <laughs> since he was none of those, he stayed. And, and that, but now he's on alert, you know, he's, he's uh, pay, really paying attention. And then they asked anybody who thought the KKK was a great American organization says, should stand. Well, he didn't stand up. Well, that immediately identified him as not a friendly. And so the speaker and many people in the audience, um, began to kind of verbally harass him. And he, he took issue with this. So he writes this long letter to the editor of the Deadwood paper explaining that to his, in his view and in his mind, he was not uh, welcome in Deadwood, uh, which was the first time that had ever happened. He'd visited Deadwood before and always felt very welcome. And he thought that this group was un-American. And I suspect that that, that tone or timber or reaction and response by many people who might come with a Catholic friend and then have the Catholic friend kicked out, that's probably not going to be conducive to a long-lasting organization. So I wonder if that kind of thing is, is what leads to its demise in Indiana. Well, you're, you're very, that, that's very right, Ben. I think, I think as more and more Americans sense that, experience that, and begin to see, we would now call it extremism, that the Klan represents. They may have been anti-Catholic, they may have been anti-Semitic, but but this was this was gone way too far. Mm-hmm. This was not America. This was not the kind of just good old-fashioned American hospitality that we were we were taught as kids and growing up. And we didn't learn this in in uh, Sunday school. Jesus loves all the children of the world. I learned in Sunday school. So yes, that that gradually builds as as the clan has more power and as people begin to see it they they start to they start to talk to each other and you can imagine these this is where the historian doesn't have the sources because i think a lot of history uh, happens around uh, kitchen tables mm-hmm. happens 
in front of the church entrance after services on Sunday morning when people stand around and talk. And I just imagine people standing around and talking outside of the Lutheran church in a small South Dakota town and starting to say, well, what do you think about the Klan? And, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure they're good. I'm, I'm, I'm a little anxious about them. Mm -hmm. Maybe we ought to, you know, blah, blah, blah. So mm -hmm. that's, I think, a very important part of the process of the downfall of Ku Klux Klan. Right. Well, and they, and of course, when they start losing memberships and people aren't paying dues and people aren't buying those expensive robes, uh, once the money starts draining away, then, then that That's leads right. to serious things. So how was Stevenson and, uh, this, these, uh, we mentioned briefly, and we've got a little time that still, uh, you mentioned the women and how they were a major force within the clan. And this, uh, you speak in your book about Daisy Douglas Barr. From a woman's perspective in the 1920s, what made the Klan appealing? Yeah, well, women were very important in the Klan. They had their own Klan organizations um, with various names in various places, but they were separate from the men. They're the, many of them are women who had been active in the suffrage movement and very active in prohibition. These were women who wanted to make things better. They were active in their local churches, in their communities. Uh, and they, they joined the Klan for the similar reasons the men did, and they had significant influence in many communities. They, they took an active lead in school reform, mm -hmm. in public libraries, and of course in prohibition, working to help children have better opportunities. So they, they saw themselves, and with some validity, mm -hmm. as, as a force for good, but they also often, usually, shared the same values that we've been talking about. So they were, they were Klan members. Yeah. They were real Klan members. The other point about the, the women of the Klan is that they had their separate organizations, and the men, uh, this is an area where I wish we had more evidence, but the men, the Klan men, were a little jealous in sometimes of the women and getting too much power and there's a few stories in the uh, in the Klan's Fiery Cross newspaper, weekly newspaper, about women getting out of place and starting to act in ways that were not appropriate for women. So there's a gender issue. There's a, a gender anxiety here, even within the Ku Klux Klan, as these women become a little too uppity for some Klan men. <laughs> okay. Well, suffrage is passed by the time this, the Klan, the yes, second yes. Klan they, comes. Yes, women so. have the right to vote, and, and they do vote. And they get, and that's one of the things the women of Klan are trying to do. They're trying to get Klan women, Protestant, white, native-born women, uh -huh. more engaged in politics. Show up and vote. Does the Klan have drives to register voters? Oh, yeah. Oh, very, very important. Very much so. They're yeah. very attended to the apparatus of politics, uh -huh. to the organizational grassroots apparatus of, of electing their candidates. Very much so. We'll just wind up here with the one thing you say very provocatively, there, and you mentioned this toward the beginning, that there can be no American history without the Klan's history. Why do you think that is? Well, I came away convinced of that after several years working on this book. Uh, in, in traditional textbooks and ways of doing history, uh, and I've looked at it, it's a, it's a real lesson to look at American history textbooks from the 1950s, let's say. Mm -hmm. They're very different from today. But in traditional textbooks, the Klan was a sidebar, sometimes literally a sidebar on the page, and a few hundred words, a few sensational words about the Klan, and that was it. I don't think the Klan was a sidebar. 
I think the Klan is in the mainstream of American history. It is in the middle of the page. It is the page. It is the book. It is America. It's not the best of America. It's not the America we would want America to be today. But it is America. And you can't hide it in a box to the side of the page mm -hmm. or sweep it under the carpet and pretend it didn't exist. I think if we're going to be American citizens in a democracy, we need to understand issues like the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s. Have you seen the musical Alexander Hamilton? I, I've only seen the film. Uh, oh, okay. I, I, I'm well, one of the few Americans who hasn't seen it. <laughs> yeah, then uh, it, it's in the it's in the film too. The the phrase, well, one of the most powerful parts of that um, show, I think, is the back and forth when George Washington tells Alexander Hamilton he's not going to run for a third term. And this uh, phrase that's in the music that the, the musical appears to make that phrase in Washington's address, in Washington's final farewell address to the American people. I was so taken with that phrase and I looked, I pulled up the farewell address on the internet and read very closely and I couldn't find the phrase. <laughs> uh, several weeks later, I, I was talking to someone who knows a lot more about George Washington than I do. And they said, oh yeah, that's, that phrase is in a letter that George Washington wrote to a synagogue where he quotes the Old Testament to this Jewish community. And he says, you are free to live under your own vine and fig tree so that no one may be afraid. He quotes Micah to the Jewish community of this synagogue in that letter. Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda then takes that out of there and sticks it in the yeah. farewell address for the musical. Uh, but I think the point is well made and, and the Certainly the point of the musical is the pluralism of America and yeah. the uh, point that George Washington is making in that phrase is you're welcome here. I'm wondering if uh, that kind of uh, pushback, express pushback, I mean, no one ever quoted George Washington to these KKK guys, evidently, or they didn't read enough George Washington to, to know. And you, and you really can't argue with George, right? I mean, no, of course not. <laughs> the founding father. Yeah, the founding father, the first man in in the hearts of his countrymen and all of that. So I think the, the backing and forth that uh, leads to the rise of the KKK, I kind of appreciate your point about it being part of American history, why it comes and why it goes away. Uh, Jim, thanks a lot for coming on History 605. It's been a great conversation. Great, thank you. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.